we're coming to the end of our 50 core truths of the Christian faith. And as in the end of these core truths, we come to what we might call the doctrine of last things, or the more technical term, eschatology. Uh, speaking about the end times, speaking about how things end. And so uh, what, what we're actually going to break this up into several weeks. And so uh, to, tonight we will deal with, in particular, uh, death, how we should see. Christians should look at and think about death, and then how we should see uh, the return of Christ. So we'll look at those two things. Then uh, next week, we'll press more into looking at, as we look at the end times, the millennium, and looking at how we should see uh, stuff after Christ returns. And in the very last week, what we'll look towards is we'll, we'll really take a hard look at, in particular, heaven and hell in particular, speaking about those type things. And, and tonight, I even felt it as I start talking about death, it's, it kind of goes on into talking about a lot of those subjects. So uh, I'm going to probably have to hold myself back from talking about some of it as well as I would encourage you to even hold back questions that might naturally come as we roll up on it. I think we will get to a lot of those in the next few weeks. So if we get to the end, maybe if you want to write something down tonight, we can discuss. Uh, but I, I trust that maybe uh, over the next few weeks, they'll all piece together to make a larger uh, picture. Um, also want to mention before we jump into this, uh, something that we teach in our Discover HG new members class, and in particular it has to do, and maybe you've heard us talk about it before, and if I'm doing it, I'll just repeat it, but we teach something we call theological triage. We got it from a guy named Albert Moeller, uh, who's the president of Southern Seminary. Many of you have heard of Moeller. He, he talks about what he calls theological triage. In the same way, you know, when you, you bring somebody into the emergency room, the nurse triages the different, um, different wounds or whatever sort of ailment they come in with. And, you know, certain people, they come in, and it's not by order of as you walk in, because some people could sit there for a few minutes, but if you walk in, say, I'm short of breath and I've got a pain right here in my chest, you're, you're instantly back, right? They know there's, there's somebody there that analyzes exactly what your ailment might be, and then what they do is they... They triage, they, they decide the ranking in order. And what he speaks about are really three different uh, orders of doctrine. And so I'll give you kind of a distinction here. I don't have this on your paper anywhere. So I, I thought of this later today as I was thinking about how to frame this. The, the first order, as he would say, like the top end, would be things that are, that are like the gospel, uh, the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Things that if you were to reject those beliefs, we would say you are now not a Christian. We, we would say you are no longer uh, a Christian or a follower of Christ. And so these would be core level, baseline beliefs. Then he says there's second order doctrines, which aren't necessarily the gospel, but in essence, the short way I know to tell you is we, we wouldn't go to church together. Um, we, we described this earlier as we were talking about church governance and maybe even, uh, let's just take Presbyterian brothers and sisters, for example. They might baptize uh, by sprinkling with an infant. But they can still believe the gospel. That you're saved by faith alone in Christ. And so I believe there are Presbyterians that will be in heaven with us one day and believe the same gospel. But we just won't go to church together because we don't baptize the same. So that will be like a second order doctrine. Now, if all of a sudden you start saying baptism saves you, You've now messed with salvation, and now that becomes a first-order doctrine. So just to kind of give an example there. Then there's like third level is what he would divide it to be. And with third level, or a third-order doctrine, he would say it might be something like what we're getting into here, the doctrine of last things, or it might even be down to their particular verses of Scripture. Uh, when you get to think about Genesis and, you know, the Nephilim and the giants and what happens in in Genesis, and exactly what that is, there are varying beliefs, even in this room, among people who love the Bible, of what those things are. 
And we would say we can go to church, love Jesus, and still hold different views there. So he would rank those first, second, and third. The reason I bring this up, oftentimes, particularly with end times and how we approach it, there are varying views in this room on this particular topic. That's why this is going to be so much fun for me to try to teach uh, with you guys all in here. So I, I would like to distinguish, though, there will be things that I, I'm going to try to do this as best I can. There are things that are, are much higher than third order doctrine. In other words, Christ will return. That's not like a negotiable piece. We're all going to hold that Christ is coming back. Now, exactly when that plays in the timetable, we might have some differing beliefs. But we all know he's coming back. So I'll get, I'm just taking a big one there, but that'll be something we'll say tonight. And we'll all hold to that but then how that plays out might fall a little bit higher. And so what I may try to do is, at that point, spread it a little bit wide, tell you a couple of thoughts, and then leave that up to maybe your conscience or conviction to where you might land. So, that being said, introducing the topic of last things. So the first, thing, the first uh, topic tonight is death and the intermediate state. I want to speak a little bit about death and then what happens after you die. In particular, how should we as Christians think about death? Let me read the summary, and then I'll walk through some scriptures on death. Death, which is the penalty for sin, is the cessation of the functioning body and its temporary separation from the soul. Death is not the end of existence, is the disembodied person continues to exist in the intermediate state until the resurrection. There's a whole lot there, but I want to walk through a little bit of it with you. You may not have heard intermediate state before, but I'll explain exactly what we mean by that. Uh, we do not mean purgatory, if you're familiar with that. But we do mean there is a state that's different after you die right now than it will be at the very end of time. And we'll explain that more in a moment. But before we get there, I do want to mention that um, death is a very real topic. Uh, and it's one of those things you don't talk about a whole lot. Uh, you talk, sometimes talk about it at a funeral. It's where a pastor will address it. Um, but sometimes even then, um, you, don't, you want to be pastoral in that moment, in the moment you have somebody laying in front of you and the family there. Uh, but I do want to speak more frankly about it tonight in the sense of exactly how should we think about it as Christians. And, you know, we all know that everybody dies. I mean, we're all going to die. It's part of life. It's a reality that sometimes when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, it feels forever away. But the more you grow older and see other people and friends, and sometimes people that unexpectedly pass away, at ages you would not expect them to. Death becomes a very real thing to understand that none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. So we need to have at least some perspective how we think about death. How do we approach this? You know, oftentimes I think about it, my, one of my favorite, speaking about songs earlier, one of my favorite lines is, uh, is the line in the song where it says, uh, the, the day I think, it is well with my soul is the song. In the very end it speaks about the day when your faith shall become sight. I always think that's a really neat concept. That one day, uh, my faith, what I now trust in, I no longer will need that faith. I will then see the Lord Jesus. So that, that's a really, to me, an encouraging thought of one day that happening. But at that moment, that's when, you know, in a sense, we're cashing in to figure out, is this thing real? What you have placed your faith in, and you know it's real here, that's the day you'll really see it. What you've trusted is then going to become real and in your sight. So let me walk through uh, a couple of things uh, that would be helpful for death. First, death is a cessation of physiological functioning. There we go. We sound smart now, right? A cessation. Cessation means stopping, like it ceases. That's the word that we're using there. And then basically your physical part of yourself stops. Uh, you see this in Genesis. I, 
I put a bunch of scripture in tonight. I finally caved and think the pastor may do it better than me. I don't know. But I put a bunch of scripture in there. I, th- I think it might be helpful. I-, I wanted to reference a lot of Bible verses, so I figured you don't have to flip. It'll be right in front of you. But Genesis 2.17 says, But the tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, and here's where the penalty of death comes, you shall surely die. So we see death right out of the gate here from the garden. And then there's this point of describing we were made from dust, and then the, the penalty here, Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so this idea of the body or the physical part of you is going to stop functioning. And so um, at that point, this is where we have to think of ourselves as separating from the physical from the spiritual. Notice the second point. Death as a separation of material and immaterial aspects of us. Earlier this semester, we talked uh, about whether we are dichotomous, we believe we are two different parts, that we are just soul, spirit, and body, or we believe we're actually three parts, soul, spirit, and body. Either way, what we're talking about here is the spiritual soul part and the physical body part are now separating from each other. Meaning that you will still exist in the spiritual form, you will no longer be, and the word here is embodied. You will no longer have a body. Uh, I thought the book did a good job of saying, uh, I think it used the phrase, that we will be unzipped. (laughs) Right? Like a zipper, if you think about it, that is together, and in a sense they come apart. Uh, They are now separate. And this is the miracle of life. At conception, we believe that these two are placed together. When, you're, when, when you are a person, these two are uh, extricably linked together. You cannot take them apart. And then when we die, these two are unzipped and taken um, apart from each other. 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to it. This will Maybe you've read this verse about the tent before, but this paints the picture I just described. 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, so that's your physical body, think about the tent as an earthly home for you, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so what I want to point you to, and I'll get to this in a minute, is that down line, you know how we talk about your resurrected bodies? One day, that is, the, that is the eternal home in the heavens that's built from God. So we know that if this is destroyed, one day we'll have a glorified body. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may be found, here, we may not be found, and here's an interesting phrase, uh, naked in the sense you would be just spirit. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, and the image here is of not having your physical body, but that we would be further clothed, that what is our mortal body, mortal, may be swallowed up uh, by life. So it's a desiring for your glorified body one day as you live in this mortal tent. There's actually a groaning for the glorified body. I don't know. As I get older, I can understand the groaning that I might have for a glorified body and not this one. Um, But ultimately, death is a penalty for sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A couple of verses here, I'll just mention them. You don't have to, I'm not going to read them all. Ecclesiastes 3 speaks about how we all have a time to die. Hebrews 9.27 is a man is appointed to die once. And then it's interesting here, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 both connect Adam's death to our death. 
So when Adam sinned and he died, is connected to our sin and our death. So death is not something we should be happy about. In many ways, it is a penalty for our sin. Because we sin, we went from dust, now we go back to dust. It's the picture of the cost of sin. Okay, so after you die, because the end has not come and the final place for either uh, sinners that have not known Christ or saints, heaven, hell, are not been, you know, the lake of fire and everybody casting it. We're not there yet. What happens to you now? Well, what do we do that we die? Because it's not instantaneously at the point of the end times. There's got to be something that happens now. And so what we refer to this would be an intermediate state. And, and uh, what I mean by that is that it's just like a step on your way down the line. The finality of death is still there. I'm not, I'm not taking away the fact that once you die and the decisions you made with Christ are done. However, I want to point you to um, a couple of different destinies that both believers and unbelievers have when they die. The first one, believers, and, and here, let me just pause for a second. The other challenge we have in this conversation is that we've got to learn to speak where the Bible speaks and stop speaking where the Bible does not speak. So I just want to be careful here. So you might say, I'm going to read you four, I'm going to show you four scriptures and four ideas about the intermediate, kind of what happens. And you say, well, what about, what about, what about? I, some levels, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, some of this, we, we have an inconclusive picture of this. And so... Uh, the best I know to do is give you a, vi- a view through the cracks that the Bible gives to help us see it. And if we really believe this, to pause on this too, we have to believe that the Lord has given us what we actually need. Sometimes I think we go searching for more than the Lord actually wants us to have with this picture. So we've got to be careful here, and I'll mention that more in a minute. But let's talk about four, four scriptures that... Speak about, if you were to die today, where do we believe you go? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and this is the same chapter 5 that we were just in. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so if you were to die today as a Christian, you would be present with the Lord. The Bible says you would be with the Lord. Also, if you were to die today, it is better to be with Christ. It is better to be with Christ. Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So there's a desire for him to live out the purposes of Christ, but also there's a desire to be with Christ. So that's what you would be today. Another verse that really gets to the heart of the issue, Luke 23.43, when Jesus is on the cross, Looking at the thief, he says, he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not next week, not next month, not when the end times happen. Today you'll be with me. And so oftentimes you'll hear uh, the, the paradise referred to almost this intermediate state. It, it has a connected term there. Even the story, I didn't mention this one, I don't have it on here, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, he'll, he'll speak about being next to Abraham. There's a sense of that idea. And then the last one here is made perfect. You'll be made perfect. And notice the phrasing here, Hebrews 12, 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I thought it was interesting, it used just the term spirits. Um, in just the sense of maybe at this point your spirit has been made perfect but not your physical body in glorifying you in the resurrection. So there is this intermediate state. The same thing happens for unbelievers. I, I, I didn't want to unpack hell tonight, but the idea of being separated from God, uh, Luke 16 is the description of Lazarus and the rich man I just mentioned. Uh, Matthew 8 and 25 
It describes hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Revelation 14 says there's no rest day or night. So this, this idea of being separated from God is for the unbeliever. To be really more under the judgment of God would be a better way to say it. So, um, let's see what I got here. Okay, we'll get to this in a minute. The last point is there uh, the resurrection and the end of the intermediate state. So we'll, I want to press this down line to the next talk as we'll talk about the return of Christ, which then will have to do with our uh, resurrection or as some terms you might know of as rapture. So we will cross that bridge in a minute, but it is deeply connected to this idea of ending the intermediate state. So, at the very end, this intermediate state will be ended. Now, you are with the Lord. You are made perfect. So, so don't think you're not instantly there. It's just not the final place. Again, do we know exactly what this is like? Not really. <laughs> we don't. I, I cannot unpack more verses. Well, what, what about this? What about this? We just, this is the picture the Bible gives us of what it's like when we die. Let me speak about some errors to avoid. One error is uh, viewing death as natural or some good thing to be embraced. Now, uh, l let me uh, pause on this. If we do believe that death is because of the impact of sin in this world, Sometimes um, we need to look at death in a light that we might not want to see it as the judgment of God on us. There is actually a part of the Lord's judgment towards us in dealing with death. Um, in particular, I, I might have written this somewhere else, but I'm going to mention it now. Um, I think there is something very natural when people go to a funeral or see death to then contemplate their eternal destiny and understand they will not live forever and they do face one day judgment. And it is very clear when you sit there at a funeral and see somebody. And um, while I do, so forgive me if I, this is where I get myself in trouble. So just love me when we're done and say that was just Mike. I know there is very right thing. I know it's I know it's right to celebrate somebody's life. I, I want to do that. I think it's a good thing to think back on all of the great things they did. But to just relegate a funeral or somebody's death and do all celebration might not be the best picture of what it actually is. I think mourning, and I think some part of it being sadness and understanding what's there is a real and right thing to do. So, so to, say it, to say that person is now dead, that is a right and sobering reality. And, and, and it's terrible. I, I don't want to say it lightly or cold-hearted or callous or any of that. But we deal with a very real heaven and hell and a very real end judgment and a real gospel that saves. And so if we really believe those things, there's a lot in the balance that when that day of death comes. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying that we shouldn't just say, I just want a celebration. I don't know if we're capturing the full picture. That, that would just be a thought. Uh, seeing funerals and thinking about them, I don't want you to celebrate the entire time of my funeral. <laughs> I don't know. That <laughs> comes out funny, doesn't it? <laughs> right so just think in terms of those and you as a Christian who understand these realities and understand the burden and understand the reality of this there ought to be something very real as the as the funeral comes and so anyway that's that's a, a thought I had that I think comes out as we look at death and understand this another point is here is to believe in soul sleep um, this is actually a Jehovah's Witness belief it's to say that the soul becomes unconscious, unconscious for a while. 
Like, in other words, you're just going to go unconscious for a period of time, and then at the very end you may wake up. Uh, it takes us the biblical thought of sleep. You know, what describes death as sleep. Uh, part of the reason the Bible describes death as sleep is we really believe that it's like taking a nap and waking up with the Lord. That I'm going to live forever, and so really the day you go to close your eyes to die will be the day you close them and you wake up with the Lord. Uh, it, it's why we really think about this is really sleep. But it's not that you're falling asleep for a long period. It's, it's a short nap and you wake up with the Lord in a sense. Um, avoid speculations. I've already said this. But avoid speculations about the intermediate state. This is where, if I can, take some shots at all the books and everybody who's written about going to heaven and coming back and then some of them have now come out and said that we made the whole thing up and all of those things, I'd just be real careful. If just I can be honest and I don't want to be offensive, don't, don't read all that stuff. I, this is kind of, you know, I'm feeling good tonight, I guess. You can get mad at me when we're done. But I'm just saying, read your Bible, and if Jesus wanted you to know, if God wanted you to know and thought you needed that for your walk, it'd be in the Bible. You don't need it. So, Find your peace about death as you read the Bible and not some of these other ones. In fact, a lot of them may be made up. Uh, here's a, here's a uh, fourth one, believing in purgatory. Uh, if you're familiar with this term purgatory, it's a Roman Catholic belief. Some of you who grew up Catholic are familiar with it. You'll know exactly what I'm speaking of. Uh, and oftentimes it might scare you a little bit when I say intermediate state because you might think that's what I'm talking about. Um, it's not what I'm speaking about when I say purgatory. Purgatory would be an intermediate state that can change your destiny. In other words, you're going to go and after you die, you can actually pray for a person that was still not in heaven, and after they pay a little bit of time not in heaven, then through your prayers and their time in purgatory, God will then accept them into heaven. But you, if, you go, if you go read, I don't have time for it, you go read Lazarus and the Rich Man, and he says there's this great chasm that you can't cross. So, so once you're dead, final. But this is a belief that sourced out of second, if you, uh, I, I'm going to run out of time tonight. But the Apocrypha, if you're familiar with, there's a, there's a list of books that the Catholic Church and some Greek Orthodox and some other church, other uh, other churches accept as part of the Bible. It's actually some extra books that would be placed in time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, it's a list of books. It's Baal the Dragon, and particularly there's one, First and Second Maccabees. If you want to study this, you, you find this fascinating, write, write this down. It's Second Maccabees, and I, I would spell it M-A-C-C-A-B-E-S. I don't know if there's two B's or not. Two B's. There we go, got some help in the crowd. So 2B, somebody called it, I was showing this to somebody earlier, it was like McAdoo. I was like, it's not McAdoo, it's Maccabees. So uh, you can look, 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, thir verses 38 to 45. And go read it. It's a story about people dying, and then it tells them they pray for them after they're dead. But that's not a biblical concept. That's found in this extra biblical book. It's not in the Bible. Then they uh, misinterpret a few passages of the Bible. If you're curious about that later, come find me. I'll give you a couple extra passages that they read through that. But I don't, I don't have time for that. Uh, another one is denying the existence after death. In other words, we think about, a lot of people will think, well, just after you die, there's just nothing, right? So that, that's another error that we would talk about. Uh, I'm going to take a second pause here. And... Um, I'll say a caveat before I say it. Some Christians, out of personal conviction, do what I'm about to say. I'm not saying that you have to do this. I hesitate to say that sometimes because once a preacher says it, you feel like you've got to do it. But I just want to say this to get your mind thinking. Because one day, as, I, as I'll talk about in a minute, in the resurrection, we will be reunited with our bodies and we will be resurrected. The Bible actually say the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, there'll actually be a 
reuniting with your physical body, and you will rise again. So God's miraculously going to pull some dust together, and up you go, right? In that moment, when you rise, some people, just out of conviction, will choose to be buried instead of being cremated because of the statement it makes that I expect one day this body to come up. Now, again, am I saying if you're cremated, that's a, that's a sin? Absolutely not. I'm not. I don't want to say that. However, I would say that some people will hold the conviction out of the Bible to say, because I know one day this body will rise, I'm going to bury it as if it's coming back out. So, something for you to think about. All right, enacting the doctrine. A few things here. You need to contemplate the inevitability of death. It, it should be a sobering reality. You, you, should concern, you should consider your own eternal destiny. You should consider the destiny of others and the priorities that come from that. Death is not something to just avoid as a topic. It is a very real thing. I shared this years ago. I shared this in here a couple years ago, I think, but I'll share it again. My, me and my wife were first married. We didn't have a lot of money, and we saved up. We didn't take a vacation for a couple years, and we said before we have kids, we were going we, we to go, uh, we go to Italy for two weeks. When, once we have kids, we know that's never happening. And so we got some backpacks and Italy, and off we went. There's one church... If I remember correctly, I think it's in Rome. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's these monks, and what they did is in the basement of this church, they built all of these, as the monks would die, they would take all the bones of the monks, and they built all these massive rooms that are decorated in elaborate decorations with the bones of the monks. It's, it's, it's terribly creepy. Uh, and, and, and by no means am I trying to say that's. in fact, I probably would say that's Overly morbid and an obsession with death. However, to take a seed of their thinking, they did that so they constantly kept their mortality in front of them, understanding that's what's said in front of them. I would say we probably don't need to go there, but we probably need to swing back a little bit to understanding we sit with mortality in front of us. Uh, death should be something that's not too far away from our thinking. Facing our own death and the death of other Christians. So this, uh, to distinguish here, we should not long for death, but we should long to be with Christ. What I read earlier from 1 Corinthians, or Philippians chapter 1, I long to be with Christ. You shouldn't long for death. You, know, you shouldn't want death. So when you say, I don't want to die, that's actually not a bad thing. That's a good thing God built in you. But there ought to be this tension to say, I want to live and I want to be with Christ. So when I die, I don't like dying, but I like being with Christ. So when I live, I don't die, but I'm actually able to have a life for purpose here. So there's a tension there that Paul talks about in Philippians 1. It's very right. So you shouldn't love death, but you should love and desire to be with Christ. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, I'll read this in a minute if I get time, if we get through it. But that is a passage that speaks about how we can mourn as hope as Christians when we face death of other Christians. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of, the sin, of sin is law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we take death on, well, I'll swing right back around, grab a hold of this verse, and through Christ now, feel victory over. So again, if you don't ever feel the sting of death, do you actually feel the victory of Christ? So that's just where it is helpful for us to make sure it's a real thing for us. One of the other difficulties, and this is probably the one that's most painful for us, uh, is facing the death of a non-Christian. At some level, this is a hard thing for us all to grapple with. Uh, in this room, I understand the reality is that we can probably think of people that are loved ones or people we care greatly for that either face that reality either soon or later 
um, or have already met that reality. So how do you handle it? What do you do? Uh, I, I have a few things at some level. Um, at some level, it's going to have a painful sting to somebody that rejects Christ. Let me mention a couple things. I would encourage you to be sure that you share the gospel in a way that you do not live with regret. Be sure that you share the gospel in a way that you don't live with regret. But about a year and a half ago, my uncle uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I was pretty sure he wasn't a Christian, my aunt as well, and um, got word through my family. I, I don't see, I haven't seen my uncle in years, and I got word through my family, he had, because I had done my aunt's funeral, who was a believer, um, I got word from my uncle that he wanted me to do his funeral, so I told my dad, I said, well, I'm coming home, and we're going over to his house, and we're going to talk to him about where he's at in his walk with the Lord. Which is kind of strange. I mean, I don't know if you deal with family members are like the hardest people to ever talk to. Uh, they're always a challenge. Uh, particularly, I mean, I'm his nephew. I'm the kid, you know. I'm not a peer to him. Took my dad with me so my dad could speak to it. Um, shared the gospel with him. And ultimately, he told me, he's like, well, I had a heart attack a couple years ago. I prayed to God. And he looked at me and said, well, I'm good. I know I'm good. Um, he, him and my aunt could articulate some form of the gospel. They'd been around church enough, so there was some form coming from them. They never went to church, didn't really read their Bible. Even in these last few months of life, I would send him, this is a little advantage I got over you guys, is that I would send him videos of my sermons. Um, that helps, you know. And so I would send those to him and say, hey, would you watch me preach? Just, I'm thinking I'm sharing the gospel. I'll, I'll use it. I'm sorry. I'm going to use it on, you know, if I can do it. And so I was like, hey, would you watch me preach? And so even then he wouldn't sit through an entire sermon of mine. And I thought, well, if you won't click on a video and sit in a room somewhere and listen to your nephew who came and visited your house, you know, preach for a half hour, there's just not a lot of fruit to believe my uncle's a believer, you know. I did his funeral probably about a year ago now. Um, and it's tough, you know, when you do that, whether you're sure they're a Christian I'll say a couple things. I say, I want to make sure that I did all I knew to do. So I know I went and sat in front of my uncle. I said the gospel to him. He was confronted with that. And it, I don't know what else to do. But that's one way you can ease your conscience. I would say, do you, you probably, if there are people in your life, or however you need to do it, um, and particularly at the end of life, they, they have a tendency to be more willing to have that conversation. But be sure to share the gospel in a way that you won't have regret. The second thing I'll say is you, you never know how some people ultimately respond. I don't know. My uncle could have been in his last days laying in that bed. And he knows that he's told me something that's not true. And you know, the Bible describes people that receive Christ all the way down to the last minute. It gives pictures of that. I don't know. So to this day, I, I don't actually know where my uncle is at. I pray that he, you know, that would have been something, but again, it's done now. And this is just a little pause. You can't pray. You can't pray for dead people. The last thing I would say, and this is a hard one to say, is that, and, and uh, just as a preacher, and as we deal with this around here, and John Harrell could probably speak to this better than I can even, but, you know, we have to be careful. I don't want to give a false hope that somebody was a Christian if they weren't. And it's real tempting to turn people into saints on the last day. I don't know if that does the best thing for your family members who aren't Christians either. But it's tough. Because I, I had to go to my family and stand there in front of my uncle. My, you know, my aunt's sitting there going, well, he's in heaven. She's walking around saying that. And then i got to get up and preach. He had a hospice chaplain get up before me in the service. Hospice chaplain get up. I, the guy doesn't have a lick of doctrinal conviction that I could see. And he put him right on into heaven. The whole time talking about how he's in heaven. So then I got to get up. His nephew, 
And I've got to find ways to s- say gospel truths without actually saying. And, and I'm not going to be crass or rude. I, I never would say in that moment, I he's exhibited no fruit. I'm not going to be mean. But I'm certainly not going to give a false assurance at that point. So I just would encourage you as you approach death like that, you have to speak frankly about it. So I understand it's a hard subject. It's a difficult piece. So, all right, we can do a quick question. I've got a whole other chapter to get through. Do you have something pretty quick, Ned? Or you? No. Just like I said earlier with the, the chasm that it describes in, you could take the example of Lazarus and the rich man. That's the passage there. If you want to go read it, uh, y'all read it later, but I think it was uh, Luke um, 16. Is it Luke 16? Uh, Luke 16 speaks about a chasm that you cannot cross after you die. So that would be a, once that is set, it is final. So those are all things about facing death of a non-Christian. Yeah, once you've given them the gospel, her point is that they can do it anytime following that. And wherever you're at, you can, you can. Well, I put too much in here tonight. So let's, let's, uh, let me try something here. I know it's 7.20. I like to be out by 7.30. Would you want me to, I'm going to take about five or seven minutes to get through a little bit of this material, and it will be done. So you don't have to sit here and get antsy with me and think, is he going to go forever? Is he going to be as long as Brian Davis was a couple weeks ago? So. Poor Brian, poor Brian. <laughs> hey, look. Hey, look, I get made fun of by the pastor. I can then make fun of Brian. It's just how it works, right? That's right. It trickles down. All right, so um, the return of Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ, is his future or second coming to earth to bring fullness of salvation to his disciples. I do understand, again, this is we press further into even how this is played out, will differ in views in the room. But we do want to contrast it first there is a first and a second coming of Christ. The first coming was his incarnation for salvation. It has already happened. It is in the past. There is a second coming of Christ which will happen in the future. This will not be for the same purpose. This is his glorious triumph. He's no longer dealing with sin. He's here to save those he's actually redeemed. So it's a second coming of Christ. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, first coming, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ's return is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. He is coming back. Titus 2, 13 But what do we do? We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'd be remiss, and I think Logan told me earlier I'd be in trouble if I didn't read 1 Thessalonians 4. So let's take a moment and read it when we speak about the nature of Christ's return. This one speaks to funerals and death as well as Christians. We do not want to be, you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. There's your term, asleep. That you may not grieve as those who do not have, those who have no hope. As a Christian, this should be your description right here. You're going to grieve, but you grieve as one with hope. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died, rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming, so here's this return, the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, so just to pause here, at the top you notice there's a couple terms, personal, meaning that he is actually going to come himself. Some liberal theology will have you convinced that he will come in like teaching or some other way. He's going to come in spirit. No, no, no. Jesus Christ in bodily form, like he did the first time, will return. So himself in a body. So the same way, if you look over here bodily, I have Acts 1.11. I'm running all over, but I'm doing it quickly. It says, the, same, the last part of Acts 1.11, the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's the same way you saw him go into heaven in a body, he's coming back in a bodily form. 
So verse 16 in 1 Thessalonians 4 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So that's my fourth point. This is a triumphant return. Revelation 1. He is coming back in this glorious way. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's why I mentioned earlier, your body, one day, zip back together, and you're coming back up. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, so the people that are alive, will be caught up, this term caught up is the term rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, personal, bodily, sudden is the one I didn't reference, and triumphant are the four ways you ought to think about his return. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about how one day there will be a sudden destruction. Right after 4, speaks about it again. Verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So what's interesting, the Christian knows it's coming here. We don't know the time, but we know it's coming. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. As Christians, we don't know the time. We know it's coming. Non-Christians will be completely surprised. That's the point of verse 3. It's just coming. You, you, they don't know. They think it's peace and security and boom, Christ is there. The blessings, uh, the second coming, let's move past that. Uh, the issue of the rapture. Man, I love to stop right now, right? <laughs> All right, we'll go a couple minutes at this and then good night. All right, so much debate surrounds this. I'll start there. So uh, there are different pieces. The rapture idea is being caught up. So the idea you're caught up with Christ. We just read it in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, what typically comes around it is there is a seven-year tribulation period, global intense period of suffering that is associated with the return of Christ. And what typically is associated around this is when around the tribulation does Christ return. Some hold to pre-trib before, at the beginning of the tribulation, and some either mid or post it towards the end. You would see it during the tribulation or towards the end. Um, so, uh, these are connected to a couple different beliefs. Dispensationalism, I mentioned this earlier, breaking the Bible up and saying each of these different periods of time. Dispensationalists are particularly prone to pre-trib thinking. So, let me carry out, I'll say this, whether it's good or not. Um, the modern way that I grew up thinking about the end times is connected to really the left behind books, right? That's how we've seen them. I grew up seeing, when I was a little kid, I remember the song, Two Men Walking Up a Hill, you know, One Disappears, One Left Standing Still, which is a biblical verse. And then um, I would press it down even further to say uh, the, there's a movie, what was the movie that was connected? Thief in the Night? There's a movie connected to that. There's also what would be a Schofield reference Bible, if many of you have the Schofield Bible. Uh, that's a dispensationalist thinking. And all that connects back to a guy named uh, John Nelson Darby, which is in the 1800s. Dispensationalism really got its start in the 1800s. I'm not here to take a shot at dispensation. In fact, is John MacArthur is a pretty famous dispensationalist. I love John MacArthur. So I'm here to say that just because that's the version you've known it's a fairly new way of reading it. Uh, started in the 1800s, and so to see that pre-trib and that component there, it's not classically how the church has always seen the end times. And so I press on that a little bit just to say that if somebody were to think about it differently or even at the end of the tribulation period, that's not necessarily heretical or completely off from how you might see the Bible. Um, to, to press an argument, you know, the, the Bible verse about two men walking, you start thinking, okay, well, at the beginning of the tribulation, Jesus comes down and gets them. Well, here's a, here's a thought for you, and I guess I can end on this, and that you can just send me a bunch of emails or something. 
But here's what I would say. is The Bible describes two times Jesus coming. So if that's the case, I'm just asking, he comes the first time with the incarnation, he comes the second time, if it's the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, he comes down, he doesn't actually stay, he pulls his people back up, he goes back, and then he has to actually come back a third time. So you might ask yourself, where is the third time in the Bible? Uh, there's not a particularly strong case for the third time. Um, there is the picture of people disappearing, so you could have this, it's called a secret or hidden rapture you could think of. Uh, here's my whole point in bringing this up. One is this so we can argue for a while, I guess. I guess I would just say, Christ is coming back. He's coming to claim his people. But if you just don't think that the left behind in that particular model is the only way to approach it. And I would press you to look at the scriptures and to see maybe some different components uh, as far as the tribulation. So that would be my one piece of saying, uh, looking at Christ's return, in particular how Christ will return and the tribulation and the rapture. You see my notes there for the rest of it. M much of that is there. I'll read one final verse and then I will be done. 2 Timothy 2, 4, 4, 8. 2 Timothy 4, 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you hear the past tense? So what you ought to do tonight, now, today, is love the appearing of the Lord Jesus one day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great hope we have in your return. And however it happens and whenever it happens, because we can be found in Christ, we find great security. God, may we be paid. May we be people that pray for the lost and share the gospel because, God, you have delayed your return and it is your grace that gives us another day to be able to speak the gospel to those who are around. God, may we be faithful with what you have entrusted us with to be able to speak to those who are around. And, God, we ask for you to save them and that they might be those who love your appearing as well one day. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.